Folks, welcome. Before we begin this week's podcast, a little shout out, a little bit of housekeeping to do with my new Patreon account service that I've set up. The podcast has been going for three years now. It's always been a labor of love, uh, self-funded, um, and it does cost uh, money to put together, uh, not least in terms of time. Each episode of Jubilee takes about 10 hours to edit, um, and there's associated costs with travel and uh uh, flights and stuff when I when I travel overseas to meet my guests, particularly in London. I've always wanted to keep the podcast ad free. I have had requests and offers to take advertising on it. Um, my sort of slightly jaundiced views on advertising have kept me away from that avenue. Also, because I feel radio uh, as a medium has been killed by advertising to the point where you know every hour on commercial radio is almost twenty three minutes now of ads. People in the media have missed what is happening in podcast world where people are clearly showing that they want more than soundbite level journalism and short, cheap dip type interviews. There's a huge, huge uh, listenership globally for podcasts much bigger than mine that go on for two hours. Sam Harris, the Waking Up podcast is one I thoroughly recommend. Um, as an example of that, Sam too uses Patreon and most podcasters are trying to sign up to some way of monetizing their wares. I feel a bit weird asking people to sign up, but if all of the podcasters do it, uh, then it at least gives a corporation free ability for listeners to contribute and help with the running costs of their favorite podcasts. So the Patreon system is www.patreon.com backslash Shawnee B. On there, you're asked basically to commit a monthly subscription fee. This is a bona fide website. All podcasters around the world use it. And they'll ask you to put your credit card details in and agree a nominal amount that you'll pay every month. Look at it like the fact that you pay 250 per day or two pounds per day on a paper or a cup of coffee. The actual amount is not important to me in the slightest. I just love the idea that there are patrons who value the podcast and feel it's a worthwhile contribution to thinking and ideas. And so I would ask those people, if you have money to spare and you are able to afford a couple of bucks a month, uh, to please, please uh, sign up. It would be very much appreciated. This said, If you can't afford it, the podcast is going to remain free to everybody. Um, that's the intention with which I um, brought it out. And uh, if you can't afford to pay, don't worry, just listen and uh, continue to enjoy it. So that's a little ad for the podcast. It's the only it's the only ad I hope you'll ever hear on A Pint with Shawnee B. The website address again is www.patreon.com backspace Shawnee B. Thank you. On to today's podcast. And today's podcast has a trigger warning built in, the times in which we live. Uh, I have an amazing interview coming up with Juliet May. Juliet is the director of The Magnificent Motherland, which is one of the greatest sitcoms to appear out of the UK in the last five years. It's um, due to have its second season launching sometime this month or next month. I actually hadn't seen the show Prior to meeting Juliet, I have since seen it. It is absolutely fantastic. A very simple idea about a single mother trying to cope with getting her kids to school in the swimming pool and juggling her love life and social life. Um, it's well worth checking out. We do talk about uh, some triggering things in here. We talk about rape jokes and we talk about whether men are funnier than women and we're having honest and good conversations. Uh, but again, in the times we live, I'm just flagging that before everyone gets all upset and worked up. There's also a big chat in here about a famous sitcom that never got to air, which is called Heil Honey, I'm Home. And that's all about Hitler and his Jewish neighbors. So plenty of things in here for people to get worked up by, but I hope a thoughtful and considered conversation about comedy and the role comedy has and must continue to have in our society. I've talked on podcasts before about the creeping disability that's coming into comedic circles where what, what comedians can and cannot say is open to outrage and shutting down comics. That's not to say that some comics have not overstepped the mark 
And when they do, they do deserve and know what's coming to them usually. Anyway, without further ado, I give you the wonderful, the funny, one of the great ladies of television, Juliet May. Welcome to A Pint with Shawnee B. Coming to you from beautiful Kinsale in the south of Ireland. We're in the Kinsale Sharks Advertising Festival. And I have a great guest to talk to today, someone I'm very looking forward to talking to, who's a queen of comedy television. She's cringing already <laughs> as I say that. She's been involved in British television comedy for over three decades, maybe even centuries. longer. Centuries. And uh, we're going to... I can't believe you said that. No, we're, going to, we're going to talk about her... That means her, I'm at least 50. Well, you said you recorded... <laughs> the chalk, chalk, chalk in 1997. In so but I did say decades, I was 12. <laughs> Uh, as you can see, I've got my hands full with this one today. Uh, her name is Juliet May. Welcome. Thank you. Have you been on the podcast before? No. But there you go. This is a first for you. And Thank you. All the stuff you've done. So you are, we're talking this morning about uh, comedy and is everything funny? Mm-hmm. And you think everything is funny? I think everything has to be funny. Has to be funny. Has to be. You've done work like Motherland, Miranda, Chalk, Hope and Glory with Lenny Henry and a show about Hitler, a comedy about Hitler, which you may talk about later I, w- I wanted to talk first of all about how someone like you got into television way back were you always funny were you don't always say way back in- way back is so bad <laughs> alright just for the record I'm 50 and she's probably younger than me no right? I'm not I'm slightly yeah, over 50 so that's really bad no way back how did I get into like, comedy were you, were you funny when you were a kid no oh well, I, my parents probably would have said I was funny I, I didn't realise um, maybe I was maybe I wasn't I don't know where were you born I was born in Ipswich. Ah, and uh, Yes. Not that I remember much about it. My, my pedigree is my dad was a theatre director mm-hmm. and my mum was not a terribly successful actress, so mm-hmm. we can ignore that. But my dad uh, went from being director of the theatre in Ipswich to being artistic director in Nottingham. And then he ran the Bristol Vic for oh, many, many years. Right, that's a big one. Yeah. So were you always in the wings? I was, actually. Yeah. I was. And I loved my dad. And I remember my dad saying once upon a time he was offered the head of BBC drama because mm. he was very much an up-and-coming director. And he turned it down. Mad man. Because mm. he loved the theatre. But, of course, when I was in my 20s wanting to get into television, I used to go, Dad, if only you'd become the head of drama yeah it would have made your life me, much easier help me up oh I think I'll approve this one who oh, yes he <laughs> so but like was it genuinely like watching the plays from the side yes uh, yeah. he was always very embarrassed he didn't really want me watching his rehearsal periods mm. which I used to get quite cross about but yes I was so involved with actors and everything to do with the theatre really actors always just come around to our house and get drunk and um Any yeah stories? Richard Harris, etc. No. Well, no. Funny enough, I was really in love with an actor called Ian Richardson, mm. who you probably never I, heard I of. Know, have I know. I picture. I can picture him. Really Tall, in love with him. Debonair kind yes, of. and he used to come around our house a lot. And I once, I think I once confessed I was rather in love with him, and and has have been embarrassed about that moment ever since. Aww. And and I know my love of actors came from that. That, yes, You're famous for, you know, you, we, we're going to talk a little bit more about this multi-camera comedy, which, mm-hmm. is, which is not unlike a play. Yes, true. You know, you're in front of a live audience. Yes. I guess you, you film stuff. Previously, Graham Lenehan and all those guys, Father Ted, one of my favourite com- mm-hmm. comics and, and writers, they shoot in front of a live audience. Mm-hmm. You were talking today about canned laughter mm-hmm. and how appalling that is. But that's genuinely sort of not used now as much as it. I in those kinds of shows. I don't think so, because I think the shows are funny enough in themselves to actually get real laughter. Sometimes you have to strip it off because it's mm, too much. Too, loud, yeah, too yeah. much. Were you smart in school and did you get... Did no, you, not really. I no. really wasn't smart at all. I was a bit of an <laughs> academic dullard. And what was the moment that first said, OK, I'm going to go down this path similar to my dad and mum, or did it just happen? By... Oh, that's interesting. I wanted to be an actress. I've never told anybody this story, actually. My father was so desperate for me not to be an actress. He sent me for a kind of fake audition at the Bristol Old Vic School because he knew that the people at Bristol Old Vic School would go, sorry, Juliet, you're not good enough. And they kind of did, but not enough for my dad. They said, she's probably never going to make it because she's not that good. And so my dad said, well, maybe... What age were you? I was 18. And how do they tell that you're not that good? Because from- I was shit. I really was shit. <laughs> I literally, just in my head, I was a brilliant actress, but really mm. I wasn't. Mm. And um, my dad said, look, darling, 
acting is just a terrible profession. You're never going to make any money. Why don't you go to Bristol University Drama Department so you can do a little bit of the acting, mm. but you can also have a degree which might take you where you want to go. Was he funneling you into behind the camera, behind you know, behind oh, the curtain? I think so. I think <clears> so. <throat> he yeah. wanted his little girl to become like him. He did. I'm yeah. afraid he did. Yes. So you did go to college then to study. I went to Bristol University. I right. and I studied drama. I'll never forget, in the last year of our three-year degree, you're allowed to specialise in design, acting, and I specialised in TV. And so what they did is they took eight of us, I think it was, down to London to sit in the gallery of a TV show as it was being made. And I remember walking into that darkened space and thinking, this is just magic. This is so exciting. There are about... 100 monitors mm. in front of you and there are about six people sitting in front of these monitors and one of them is a director calling the shots and I thought that is me and and that is what I ended up doing interesting so what enough. was the first big that you can remember the first when you said okay now that the heat is on now I am do, you know doing my first thing what can was you remember it? what it was yes like, I directed Tolkien Pops ah Jimmy Savile he's not funny <laughs> <laughs> Was it around that time, though, like sort of 80s? It was when my kids were born. It was 1994. I'd 94, been doing sort okay. of lots of grotty jobs beforehand, you know, yeah. running and stuff like that. In 1994, when I had my kids, I was so desperate to leave the house. Mm. I directed Top of the Pops, which was a big but multi-camera. you don't just get to direct Top no, you of the don't. Pops. So no, what, so what I you, done. What so the gap okay. that I'm missing between Bristol The gap you're missing. I worked in local, local TV, and I was desperate to do some comedy. And for some reason, I met Paul Jackson. I can't remember how, but he quite liked me. And he gave me the job of directing little inserts into a Simon Mayo show, which was called Scruples. And he had a panel and the panel used to watch little bits of drama. And he used to say, what would you do in this situation? And I directed little bits of drama. Mm. So that was my first foray into working with so actors. So there were little funny stings in little, the middle of a little, show, right? Just little tiny dramas. Yeah. Loved it. What was it like back then in terms of, like, today we have, you know, Netflix and we have, you know, there's just so much content and stuff being made. I dabbled with radio comedy and stuff like that back in the sort of 90s. And it was always really hard to get to get stuff up, maybe just in Ireland, but... Was it easier then than it is now or, hard, or more difficult? What do you mean, get stuff up? Well, get stuff to approved and into production and made and out there. I mean, it just seems like every week on Netflix there's like 25. We're just snowed with stuff. Whereas a, a big new show comes out in the autumn schedules and it's like, okay, these, these are the five big shows that are coming out across British television. Yeah, but I, I imagine you create your own content, do you, as a comedian? Well, no, back then we were trying to get little sketch shows, start in radio, hope to get them into television eventually. I mean, that, that was a path that the day-to-day took yes. and a lot of, a lot of British yes, comedies yes, went, went down. There were even Monty Python and all the way back to, to um, David Frost and the Frost Report. Yeah, and yeah. All of those shows kind of started off life on radio because it was cheaper. Yes, of course. But do you think it's harder now to get comedy? Get stuff going. I think probably it is, but I'm a hired hand. Mm. So I don't write and I don't perform. So when someone like Sharon Horgan has a show like Motherland, they will look to hire someone. Yeah. So it's really Sharon that gets stuff up. Yeah. And I'm just running along behind her. And how much of the, in, in your past shows, for example, do you input over and above just directing? Oh, God, you have to these yeah. days. I mean, every show, you ask very interesting questions because every show is different mm. and every actor is different. So you have to gauge how much every project or every actor wants you. Yeah. Some actors really want you. Some actors don't want to talk to you really? because they know what they're doing. They really don't want any notes at all. Yeah. And they're, they're usually the actors you can't give notes to. Examples but, being the best ones. No. The Rowan Atkinsons of this world, those sorts. No, no, no you no. funny enough, I think sometimes the best ones need the most notes because okay. they're the most open and the most confident. Mm. It's usually the ones who are not so good that <laughs> they don't want anything. The divas. It's interesting, isn't it? Yes. It is. The main thing I wanted to talk to you about was because I was fascinated about this idea of the line. You talked about work mm. out where the line is in comedy and how you're going to cross it mm. and how dangerous that is. Some mm-hmm. of my favourite comedian, probably my favourite comedian globally is Doug Stanhope. I don't know whether you've heard of him. He's an American. Uh, no, I don't know him. Check him out. I'll send you a link to some okay. of his stuff. But he walks this tightrope in his shows that is so easy to fall the wrong oh, way. Oh, I love that. You know, and, and you know, people like Chris Morris, again, mm-hmm, probably mm-hmm. In, in the UK, where he, 
you know, his Brass Eye series included a paedophile special. Oh, I love that. Which is like, I, I remember when that came out, I went, that, that's the only show I think I've looked at and gone, how did someone approve? <laughs> For those listening, it was a, there's a show called Brass Eye in the UK, probably 20 years ago now, and they did spoof mockumentaries on issues of the day, and they did one about a paedophilia, and it was just, you know, he, he even brought out his alleged son and showed him to a paedophile, so you don't fancy my son. No. Yeah. And I just looked at that and I went, I can't, because I, I, I would have been writing kind of stuff that was I would have thought slightly edgy, but this was just, so I brought the, I brought the head of, um, I knew the head of Bernardo's, the children's charity Who in Australia, Glynis Sakara, if you're listening, Glynis, hello. And I brought her home and I said, oh, I want you to look at this and see if you as the head, like and she, she saw suicide and drug overdose and all the sexual abuse of yeah. kids and everything. And she looked at it and she thought it was hilarious. She, there was one bit in it that she said, <clears throat> maybe not that, but I just was, I was fascinated about, about, you know, and then I suppose the other area is rape. I mean, that, that's the big topic over in America. You can't do a rape joke. Rape jokes, you're not allowed to do a rape joke. I mean, where do you stand on those sorts of issues? Oh, I, no, nothing is taboo. Mm. Honestly, I really honestly believe it. I mean, what did you think about Hal Honeyham Home, the clip about Hitler? Yeah, so... But was that was that so unacceptable? Julia, well, explain explain Hal Honeyham Home. Hal Home is a sitcom about Hitler. I mean, there's, there's lots of reasons why that came into being, but... Basically, it's, it's a sitcom about Hitler, and some people find it absolutely unacceptable. I think it's absolutely fair play. Yeah. I think he, he's you've got to well, diminish him. The context, him. though, diminish they, were sitting, him. they were living beside two Jewish. Oh yes, neighbors. they were living living beside two Hitler Jewish neighbors. Yes, and they used to pop into each other's apartments <laughs> with chicken soup, and you know they were very friendly people. And the sitcom is a traditional American sitcom mm. where jokes happen yeah. and we used to make terrible jokes about him going onto the balcony having his fix of Zeke Heil, Zeke Heil. Yeah. But explain what happened to that because it's a good, it's a good well, example. Well, the premise is that an American TV company in the 1950s decided to make a sitcom about a Jewish couple li living next to Adolf Hitler and Ava Braun and when it was made in the 1950s, the executives, when they watched it, decided it was just so beyond the boundaries of good taste that they locked it away in the vault, never to be seen again. And lo and behold, in the 1990s, it was found and it was shown. But at the time it was shown for the TV company that made it, the executives looked at it and went, this is so beyond the boundaries of good taste, we can't show it. And that's mm. the fact, not the premise. And so... It has never been shown, which How I think is a tragedy. How many episodes were made of that one? A pilot and six. Right. You were saying earlier that you think if you were commissioning something now about, say, Hitler... I mean, yes, a sitcom about would, Sittler. Yeah, Hitler. You would, Sittler. You would, Hitler. <laughs> Sittler. <laughs> Sittler. You, would, you would actually approve. Well, that. you have yeah, to. I, I agree with you. I agree with you. You've got to laugh but at him. You You've got to take him down. Do you, I mean, we're, 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 we're having this interview in the midst of the anti-Semitism. I know you're Jewish. Yes. Anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Are you Jewish? And, no, I'm not. <laughs> do I look Jewish? <laughs> Everyone in Ireland is a that's Catholic. That's not... Um, I'm a lapsed Catholic. <laughs> no, but, 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 you know, Ireland has this thing going on now, Palestine, and yes. Jeremy Corbyn's been called yes. an anti-Semite. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and actually some of the greatest comedians globally in history are Jewish, uh, Woody Allen and all these yeah, sorts of guys. Yeah. How does that become anti-Semitic? How does how does the Hitler show become anti-Semitic? Or does it? Because I, you know people will say, oh, outrageous, this is you? terrible, you can't make fun of what well, happened. I don't think it ever does. I don't well, I agree with you. Ever does. And that's, I don't know, that's a question I can't answer. It's not. So we're drifting now towards, you know, talking about social media. You mentioned it again in your speech. Yes. Like, just the outrage that happens and all the shaming that goes mm. on. The new thing is calling people out. I'm calling oh. you out on your thing. We have personal pronouns now where you're not allowed to say you have to call people by certain pronouns and Zer and Zim and there's even an elf people are identifying as being elves, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. But to the point where it can be a crime. I know. You know, I'm an elf. I've got my ears done. I'm, I mean, I'm not. Like, <laughs> you some look people a bit get, elfish. They get ear operations to make them look more elvish. God. Elvish Presley. And uh, if you, uh, you know, funny. <laughs> if, if you don't say hello, Mr. Elf, you can be criminalized in Canada. At the moment. I think it's gone mad. Ridiculous. I think it'll do you think it'll I mean, it, comedians today, just going back to something like the rape thing, there was a, a big issue with Daniel Tosh, uh, who's an American stand up about eight years ago where he was 
he was doing a rape joke in a huge audience. I mean, so let's just take the other side of the fence. The other side of the fence is that if you're a stand-up comic and there's 200 people in the room, there's a likelihood that maybe eight to 10 of them have been sexually assaulted mm-hmm. women. Mm-hmm. Uh, my response to that is, well, you know, if you're very sensitive about things like that, don't go to a comedy show because... Or also leave if you're, if you're feeling upset, just go. So that's what happened with Daniel Tosh. This woman about six rows back didn't like his rape joke got up to leave excuse me excuse me excuse me and like the whole show kind of ground down he goes what's wrong and she shouted up at him which I think is fair enough too mm-hmm. and as she's walking out the front he just kind of fucked it up by saying imagine if all those guys in the front row raped her on the way out which was got called got, got him into a huge <laughs> sort of and that, you know this is where I land it's not it, there's an issue with is it funny like I didn't think that was funny right so a comedian taking the piss out of someone who's leaving who, who makes a rape joke about someone who's leaving because they don't like rape jokes now you're looking at your face, the, the, those looking, li- listening in, her face is now starting to change a little bit. <laughs> Although she may be about to burst out laughing. I don't well, know. no, the trouble is I probably am about to burst out yeah. laughing, but I've never been raped. So, mm. oh God, I, I don't know. I sound like such a callous old cow, but... No, but I, I think there's a freedom of speech discussion here I... because I think, I think, like, my view on it is, yes, rape jokes are allowed if they're funny. Now, then we go to what's funny. I mean, there are some great rape jokes one of them is uh, you know a guy comes home from uh, work and says to his wife do you want to play the rape game tonight and she says no and he goes well that's the spirit I think that's quite quite a good rape joke Um, but I don't think what Daniel Tosh did was correct do you not no because I I think he I think he was trying to he was insulting somebody yes yes maybe that goes too far I'm just a comedy whore and if, it, <laughs> and if it makes you laugh I kind of think it's fair game but but you know slap these people down you know and, mm. and to- well the point is that the, now nobody believes that you can do, touch that subject but then you go okay can we touch cancer can we touch dead babies can we touch you've got the- it you can't keep narrowing exactly. it down exactly because where's the line Exactly, which is what I was talking about very brilliantly. You were, you were, and you, you, you had a great, you had a, you, you had a great comment about Aristotle and this instrument of truth and yes. using comedy as truth. I talked in the podcast before about the court jester in the old yes. kings, and like the court jester usually got killed because he overstepped the mark. Did he? Oh, I didn't. That's so the king fascinating. Was like, Look at I can yes. make this guy yes. laugh. This guy can make, and eventually he'll say something that goes off of the line. Yeah, get the next, get the next one in. Bring in the next um, jester, yes. But you know, you have, you know, you we have a we have a I think very powerful Me Too movement, which is about time this has happened. But comics in the middle and the people who are supposed to be the court jesters of today are finding it very hard to. Are maneuver. they nervous? I think so. I think so. And I mean, again, is television breaking any comedy boundaries? I mean, Netflix are just full of bad stand-up shows, as far as I'm concerned, because they're easy and cheap to make. They're just giving everyone and their and their mother a comedy special. Mm. You know, you look up, you look at them, and you go, "It's not that, not that good." So you're missing this sort of uh, filtration process where, in order to get a comedy special, you've got to be really, 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 really good. Mm. I think a lot of the the dross in the middle of stand up is being given shows because they're cheap, and we need to, as much content mm. as possible. Mm. I mean, do you are you you're, you're working now mainly as a uh, commercials director? No, 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 no. My commercials career is just a little flirtation. Okay, okay. Absolutely. I liked what you were talking about today about this idea that short form comedy doesn't really allow for depth of character. Depth of character. Yeah, it's Talk true. Talk a bit though. more about that for me. Well, how can it? Because in thirty seconds, you really can't get to know anybody I don't think and I, I, I was going to say funnily enough and I probably forgot it that um, you know what happens if you take a core group of actors in a commercial and you run it day in day out hour in hour out mm. can you ever get a depth of a true depth of personality of character and I don't think you can I was trying to think about it when you when you said it and I, I, I came up blank alright I mean I thought something like Mr Bean was interesting but, you, but then you, huge, but yeah, you, but you, Mr. Bean has done, you know, mm. well, a Rowan Atkinson, people feel they know him, and you know, yeah. Mr. Bean has done movies, so I suppose you can possibly take him and advertise something, and people go, oh yes, I actually do know you because you're doing Mr. Bean, mm. but for some reason, I, I quoted um, John Cleese when he was doing that thrashing that car for yeah. spec savers, and mm. was any did anybody find it funny? I agree with you on that, yeah. No, it's not funny because it's just John but it's Cleese. Also ripping, you know, if you're going to use John Cleese. Do you know, something don't, different. Do something different with it because he's kind of funny. Right? He is well, but not still. Any, I think. Actually, no, he's not no, funny. He's not. Has he got? Has got some? Uh, 
know upstairs. Him. Did you see his? Billy like, Connolly's not funny anymore. Well, no, because he's ill. Yeah. Well, like, he was. He stopped. <laughs> so drinking. can you make? <laughs> when he stopped drinking. <laughs> no, Robin it's because Williams. he drank drinks so much. Is <laughs> the fact he's ill. I don't know whether. I don't know whether. I love uh, Billy Connolly. Yeah, don't you? I liked early I Billy Connolly. I loved him. That, that's another thing about this this issue with particularly British comedy. Faulty Towers, Father Ted. Oh God! Uh, you I know, think the, it's you, you get you get dried up though because, like in America, I read recently that The Simpsons have something like twenty-four writers. Yes. On the show. Yes. And Connie Booth and John and John Cleese wrote Faulty Towers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Graham Lennon and Arthur Matthews wrote Father Ted. But there's only so many episodes. Two people, I think, can get out and keep yes, the thing, keep the yes. joke not running. Do you do you feel that? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. There are certain veins of comedy that are so rich. I mean, Motherland. Why on earth has no one done Motherland before? Because do mm. you have kids? No, on purpose, deliberately. Okay. Can't stand them. <laughs> <laughs> Overpriced and overrated. Yes, well, you're probably right. But I have two, and yeah. I just know, and I said in my talk that, you know, Motherland was just so personal and so relevant to, mm. you know, most, half the population, they've yeah. all got kids. And it is an absolute black farce of hell and you know there is so much you can write about it and so I do have faith that Sharon and Holly and the rest of them can go on for years and years and years too much to write about well there yeah I mean I think that that that, I hadn't I hadn't actually got into that show and I I will after seeing that clip it's hilarious Juliet showed a very, very interesting (laughs) clip if I I can put it on the blurb of the podcast oh no do try it's on YouTube yeah Yes, it is cool. So, the, so again, then the other going back to the comedy, the idea that it, do you believe the idea of comedy is all comedy, give or take, is laughing at another person's misfortune? Oh, that's a very interesting. Yes, probably yes. So, I mean, initially, like you could say slapstick, you swing a ladder, I duck, and you hit me on the way back. Yes, funny. Yes, but also, but it's the same thing that um soaps do. I mean, that's mm. why there's always EastEnders and Coronation Street do. These catastrophic stories where people are shot, murdered, raped. Mm. Because people at Christmas, especially those people that are not having such a great time, yeah. watch these shows and go, thank God yeah. that's not me. And they feel a tiny bit better than, about do, themselves. Yeah. And I yeah. think it's brilliant. Yeah. People always, always want to find about, find that, read and, and watch people that are yeah. less fortunate than themselves. It's a real function. So I'm going to be contentious with you now. Um, there is a there is a, uh, a school of thought, and I'm not 100 percent sure either way where I land on this. That biologically, and historically, and caveman-ish times, men need to be funnier than women <laughs> because smelly, ugly, disgusting men, in order to try and find a mate. Laughter is a way that shrouds their ugliness or their smelliness or whatever. Nice point. And women haven't necessarily had to be funny. Okay, so I'm, t- I'm tiptoeing on ice now before, before everyone jumps down my throat. The idea that the comedians, the female comics that are have been very successful, have been very sort of loud blokish types of comedians the sort of Joan Rivers and people like that yes um, even Joe Brand there's a, there's a lot of people a lot of female comics that have that kind of oeuvre of kind of angry tough woman comic are women and men as funny as each other that is really interesting question and I would say yes they are but what you're asking me is, are there any little feminine, sweet women comics doing little feminine, sweet jokes? Well, I'm not. I'm, I'm, no? I'm trying to... Yes, partly. I'm trying to say, are, is com- is, and particularly stand-up comedy, is comedy... Is, is, are there more male comics because males get more opportunity? I mean, you know, I can understand why... For example, there are more male builders than female builders because there's, there's, Stronger, there's yeah. a physiology mm, thing mm. going on. Is there something in comedy that precludes women from getting on or forces them to act like kind of their male counterparts? Or is it that there's a biological thing going on where, his, you know, even growing up? I think women can be and are absolutely as funny as men and I wonder whether it's just about the opportunities they've had I do think times are changing sometimes for the good and sometimes for the worse but I I do feel that the world of comedy is 
opening up now to all sorts of things. I mean, particularly women. And you know, there's that whole diversity thing that's going on, which which is great as well. But I do think that women don't knock, have to knock on the door quite as hard as they did. Yeah. But I also do think we live in a society where circumstances make it more difficult for women to find the time to knock on the door as hard because I, I you know I think it's all still quite traditional and I think women do have children and do have to bring them up and do feel still slightly cowed by what is still quite a masculine world mm. but I do think it's changing mm. it's not a question of being less funny than men I just think it is opportunity I agree with you on that. You you were also when you were talking earlier about the, your first job as as um, directing Top of the Pops. Mm. Just segue into that into the Me Too and all the stuff that was going on. Apparently in mm. BBC, you were, you were worked a lot with the BBC. Yeah, I was did. It, what was it like, and has it changed? Well, do you know, my friends raise their eyebrows when I say this. But I started in television because I'm massively old now. But I started when there were very few women around. Yeah, I was one, I really was. I was one of the first women directors around. And I can honestly say with my hand on my heart, I have never felt discriminated. I have never felt that it was more difficult for me as a woman. I have felt that because I was one of the few women around, my opportunities was, were opened up. I sped through my career. But not because you're a woman. Possibly. No, no. Because no. maybe... It was meritocracy. It was... It, it was, was... I felt absolutely yeah. it was an open, fair playing field. So when all this stuff comes out of the woodwork over the last 10, 15 years, around the time when you were starting, starting off, off yes. you didn't see it. Never. Was it a shock to you that it was even there when it came out? Or was it like, oh, yeah, I'm not really surprised that some of it... No, you know, it was a shock. Actually, it was a shock. My daughter, I've got a 20-year-old daughter, will have her hand, head in her hands. And she's going, Mom, you know, for God's sake, don't you realise how oppressed we are? You know, how mm. difficult it is for us. But honestly, I never felt it at the time. So how do you look at, the, you know, when, you, when your daughter says that to you, do you agree? She gets really cross yeah, well, when I, I my she gets really that. And a lot of cross. Women do, and they're right to, I think. I mean, it, it, this. But I, no, yeah. but I can't talk about something that I experience. never experienced myself yeah, yeah. ever, ever once, yeah. never once. Yeah. And there's a lot of talk. I've been talking to some lovely people here, you know, in the advertising industry, and they say, you know, that they champion women's rights, and I think that's great. But I go, yay! I do endorse it, but I, I can't feel it because I've never experienced it. So, you know, a, a, a sitcom that was making light of Me Too. Mm-hmm. Discuss. I'd laugh. It was funny, <laughs> obviously. And yeah, you know, if it's funny. If I, it's I, funny. So then who decides what is funny? <gasps> that's such a big question. Do you know, I get sent lots of scripts and I read them and I go, mm, that's not funny. Put it mm-hmm. in the bin. I go, that well, could be funny with a bit of work. Oh, God, that's exhausting. And then you get the third set of scripts, which are the smallest pile and you read them Mm. and you go bloody hell get me on this show that's the funniest thing I've ever read in my life you can tell from I honestly can tell so the middle ground is a lot of hard work and you can make it brilliant Mm -hmm. but those odd scripts you get Motherland was one you just go that is hilarious but then, so so Father Ted, we talked about earlier. I, I was I was given I was offered that job. No, right. I wasn't offered it. Sadly, I was sent the script, and I yeah. went for an interview. Please, please, God, God, please, because I was really young at that time. Mm. Didn't get it, but I knew that was comedy gold. So, but or to you, the Irish television station passed on it. Did they? Yeah. They so it went, it to, went, went to the BBC from, then. Channel Four made it. I mean, the guy who who played Ted was a guy called Dermot Morgan, who died actually. This I know. God, he died. I he died in the in the rap party. Because he drank too much. Well, because God <laughs> probably went oi. <laughs> 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 he, spe- he spent an awful lot of his career impersonating priests and stuff. But when when it came out here in Ireland, everyone loved it. And then we found out Ortiz passed on it, and we all like because that that's to me would have been our. Our faulty towers. Yes, know, it would have been the if if it had been. I mean, of course, Irish writers, Irish actors, the whole shebang. But the people who signed the check were, were Channel Four. I mean, that's just a letdown. So there's so the idea of balls in male and female in in commissioning stuff. Um, again, we're coming sort of full circle round to to back to the brass eye conversation. But are there are there people who are in your experience more or who are braver now when it comes to seeing edgy? comedy material 
What bravery in terms of man, men or women it. or commissioning yeah. commissioning it? No, it's worse. I think it's worse. So people are looking over their shoulder. Ah, that will get us into hot water. Yeah, with social, yeah. Okay. Yes, no, absolutely. Because I think there's so much money involved, and people really can't be terribly brave. Because if you don't get those now, only four or five million, mm. then you're you're out of there. Yeah. And, you know, everybody talks about Mrs. Brown's Boys, which, you know, is a massively yeah. successful yeah, comedy. I don't find that funny. But, I mean, but, but you know, you say that. How instantly you say that. And yeah. it's so easy to say that because yeah. it's not terribly, you know. But, but you know, okay, but then there's but different it, types you of know, yeah. That's 8.15 you can't on a Saturday argue, after. You can't argue yeah. with, is it one, eight or nine million? Yeah. So I refuse to go, oh, that's cheap comedy. That's an easy laugh. It's not. They work really hard on it. And I was about to say, oh, well, I don't find it funny myself. But... You know, I watch it and I laugh. Well, it's a personal thing, but there is comedy that is designed to appeal to a lowest common denominator brain. And you think that's Mrs. Brown's point of view? I think Mrs. Brown's. <gasps> a wide, I'm shocked well, that you okay, say that. A wide, a wide. I mean, I'm, maybe I just don't like Brendan O'Carroll too much. I don't know. That may, that may be coming into play here. But I, I'm Why? talking. Why? He's so or, or funny. Michael McIntyre. People like that. I love who, Michael McIntyre. I'm, I'm trying to say that there's this kind of. There's this kind of. Um, snobbery no it's yes, not you're snobbery a snob. no you're it's a not snob. snobbery it's like Michael McIntyre will probably have about six or seven writers writing for him Doug Stanhope writes his own material mostly oh that's, an, that's have... a behind the scenes snobbery who okay. cares who okay. wrote it and then the, the work is being made to appeal to as wide an audience as possible because what's wrong with ba- that because we're based on well I'm, I'm asking you I mean, nine is, million is, viewers is, watch yeah or something like that watching Mrs. So, Brown's so, so I guess my point is the advertising driven television model which is being slightly fractured by Netflix at the moment yes. demands 9 million viewers 9 million viewers there are huge boundaries about what you can and can't say you, you know, can't do the I rape jokes. I don't think you can do that. I don't think you can Brendan do... Brendon O'Carroll nearly does rape he jokes. Nearly, he just doesn't say the yeah. R word, does right, he? Right, but there is a set of rules, maybe not written down anywhere, loosely in play around 8.15 on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. Okay, also there's a, there's a watershed for children, I mm-hmm. guess, so you have, to be, you have to bear that in mind. But this grumble weeds all the, all the way back through the sort of that, you know the show I'm talking mm-hmm, about. Mm-hmm. And there was loads of them. And some of them were very good and some of them were okay, mm-hmm. but... I'm not the arbiter here, mm. but we're talking about edge in comedy. And but I, don't I think, think for it... his slot, I think he's quite edgy, mm. and he breaks the fourth wall rather brilliantly. I mean, this could be a, a, an Anglo-Irish debate that we're having here because I'm not. You sure. don't find him funny at all. Well, I'm, I'm not sure whether it's just a bit paddy whackery for us. I'm not sure whether. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not <laughs> sure whether we. I'm not sure whether we can. can um, I'm a. There's a young woman stroke man with you know writing partner at partners out there who are planning to write the next big sitcom mm-hmm. and you're going to be directing it in the future but mm-hmm. you don't know yet mm-hmm. what advice do you give to someone who's who's trying to break into the into the comedy particularly sort of say like let's say sitcom environment well they always say write what you know but i'm not sure that's great advice gosh let me think about that i think it's got to do with truth and honesty and writing about a situation that you feel people will get will sympathize with will say god that's just like me or just that's just like my sister or my aunt or my mum it's a question of connection I was just thinking of Phoebe Waller-Bridge and, and Fleabag and you know I watched that and it had a huge connection with me because all the time I was going god I know that situation mm. and that's what the best writers do they mm. they write things that you've been thinking about all your life and suddenly you see it mm. and I think that's what she does very brilliantly so motherland is a similar it's thing. the same yeah. thing yes exactly but what about technically what, what technical advice do you give in terms of I have a load of friends I mean you know when you sit down and start writing a screenplay mm. you don't know how to do it and there's that element but just in terms of I mean what I say to people is you know, just imagine the curtains coming back in the cinema and just write about what you see, what you're looking at on mm. on the screen. Do you have any like little tips, especially from a director's point of view? Like, what what's, what are the things that you, as a director, when you do read those scripts, you go that, make, that, that bring you over the line in how they're written or in the way they're approached? It's got to make me laugh. It can't be, 
you know, cheap jokes, jokes that don't resonate in any way with the plot. You know, they're just slapped on top. Mm. Comedy writers, if they're going to do a sitcom or a comedy drama, they need to have the whole arc of the series in front of them mm-hmm. and know that in its bones and its and it, in its fundamentals, it's funny. And, you know, the jokes have got to be integral to, to the characters' personalities and the plot and just don't slap jokes over the top. And the thing that drives me mad is when the energy drops, which is not to say that you can't write quiet moments or sad moments, but mm. there's got to be something driving it through because yeah. when it drops, it's boring. So you, you would say the, the when you talk about the arc, fit, work out the entire... The whole thing. As a, as a sort of a two-page story and then... Two-page? No, and then episode them. Is that what yes, you like? Like yes. have a kind of a treatment that's fu- fully finished? This Probably. is what's going to happen in this journey spin off characters and say here's what their story is yes do do the whole bloody thing which is difficult when they go oh they just wanted 30 second taster mm. but I think you have to have in your head where it's going and how the characters are going to develop and the truth of those characters mm. otherwise it's just meh it's, it's your Mrs Brown's boys yeah. it's just joke 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 <laughs> um when we look at away from what you do as your job and the wider world Okay, so we talked about some of the issues that are impacting on comedy. How do you see the world that you live in today outside of comedy? Do you, are you pessimistic or optimistic about the future? Do you find it funny? Do you find it scary? Oh, it depends on how much I've had to drink. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> Do you know, I've had a real skinful the scary. night. It goes from scary to funny. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I've had a skinful the night before. I might wake up thinking, oh, I'm so depressed. I'm so old. The world's going to end. Brexit. Mm. Oh. I always find when you get up, when you get up from the prone position and you get up, things yeah. look a little better. But, you know, if I've had a really clean week and I wake up and I've gone for a run, I think everything's going to be great. We're, we're recording this interview in the week that uh, Donald Trump stood before the United Nations and they all laughed at him, which I thought was brilliant. <laughs> so disarmed. You've got to make a comedy yeah. about Donald Trump. Yeah. yeah. He's hilarious. Well, it was like... And a, dangerous, like obviously. Yes, Prime Minister, you know. When he, that one of the greatest shows ever on British yes, television. Oh, you know, yes, so Minister, brilliant. Yes, Prime Minister. Yes. But, you know, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. There's a new Father Ted coming out. on a, a, they're, they're writing a play, by the way. It's called Who? Pope Ted. The two of them, they're back together writing a, it's a musical. Pope Linehan? Yeah. Pope Ted. Oh, God, I can't Father see Ted that. becomes the Pope, which is brilliant. Oh, brilliant. Um, what do you say to your younger self, looking back, if you had to go and... Talk to her. I think I'd say don't worry so much. I think an awful lot of life is wasted by worrying mm-hmm. about what people think about you, what you're going to do, what failure you are. Did Just, you have a lot of that? Yes, I think all people that are in this business think that they're frauds and charlatans. I mean, mm. I still do. Before I did that speech this afternoon, I was going, oh, I'm just a fraud and a charlatan. You know, what what interesting thing have I got to say? Well, explain that to me, because, I mean, you have, uh, I mean, let's say if you were an architect and you'd done, you know, seven or eight brilliant buildings in your career, you would not say you were a fraud or a charlatan. I don't know. I think they might. I think think a great architect, a great anything might go, I'm just a fraud. Is part of that self-criticism, though, about driving you further and I think further? so. Unfortunately, I Which think so. Which is probably so. a good thing. I think people pain who... Pain in the ass. It's a real pain in the ass, yeah. And I think people that don't have self-doubt never push themselves quite as far. That's a huge generalisation. But unfortunately, and I, I know I would tell my younger self not to worry so much, but I think it's absolutely integral to who I am. And there's nothing I can I, do about it. I should just retire and stop working, so I can stop I've worrying. Done, I've, I, you know, I've done a hundred of these now, and it's a it's a common thread. Mm. Actually, people who either were told they weren't good enough, and so were trying to prove someone wrong, or are constantly beating themselves up because they're either perfectionists or they just are never satisfied with their mm. own output. Mm. I mean, you can look back on you know, all of these shows that you've done and I can see when you're talking about them, you're you know, they they, they do give you a certain satisfaction. They do. Because you have some brilliant snippets of mm. comedy gold that you were you were directing. Mm. Do you still sort of beat yourself up? Yes. 
Probably that more will so. Never stop. Never, unfortunately, never stop. No, it, it will never stop. So you wouldn't say to your younger self, "Stop worrying." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you know directing is like the reason I do it is it's like beating your head against a brick wall, especially in long form stuff. So I beat my head against a brick wall and worry for nine weeks, and I always remember the nights when the car drives me home when we've wrapped finally and I sit there as I go over the Westway and I go I would never do any other job I'm so happy now because it's done one of the shows you worked on I think it may have been Chuck you thought was superb and you you had this story about the reviews that came out yeah they were terrible absolutely terrible and it's quite a long time ago and I was still quite young and I remember opening the paper and said and it said something like this show is terrible I wish it would go away <laughs> and I honestly I, I remember know. I was on Paddington Station I think going to see my mum and I, I yeah I just went I can't believe it in the story I read you were that, that everyone was convinced you had a surefire hit yes and there was no way this was not going to be I mean what do you think of critics well, they they've got a job to do, haven't mm. they? You know, everybody has their own taste. But this one, this one, it went the, so far. Yeah, it left the sh- it left the stable in great order, and by the time it came home from the ride, it was been whipped to pieces. I'm losing my bad analogy. <laughs> That's <laughs> I, true, though. I started that up there. <laughs> it was good. It was good. It was good. It'd been whipped to but, pieces. But, but, yeah, but how? Like, but, I, because I, in advertising, one of the things that happens is when you win lots of awards. Quite often, the spot that wins, you look at it and you go, "That was all right." and you're kind of semi-surprised that it's hit the nerve it's hit and then there's other stuff you think that's definitely going to win and it doesn't and it doesn't I know Why is but, that? Do you, but, but do you like me you go you go oh I love that thing before it hasn't won and then it doesn't win you go no I wasn't that good anyway was no, it no I, I, I defend it I keep <laughs> going no it's not bloody good I think I do I mean I, I oh I'm I, just I, such a cheap date I'll go oh yes of course that one that won is brilliant <laughs> <laughs> What, what about the future of comedy? Where do you see it going? Oh, God. You talked about Martin McDonough, which is... Yeah, so which I is, love Martin McDonough. pronounced his name wrong. Well, go on, who did I say? McDonough. Dodona. I said McDonough, didn't I? Yeah, McDonough. That's because I was very nervous, and I actually called him Terry, I think. <laughs> Terry McDonough. Yeah, brother, I think. Yeah. He's not very good. No. But, like, he's a good example, Oh, God, I think, I think he's I, sensational. I went to one of his plays here last week. Oh, which it was, one? It was in um, the... Uh, one about the Gravedigger, um, Skull and Connemara, it's called. Is it good? It's one of, that's one of the trilogies. That were, that he did three out in the West of Ireland. That you, you saw the lieutenant... Uh, of Inishmore. Oh, God, that was so brilliant. Uh, and the beauty queen of Linan as well. Mm-hmm. So it's weird. He has a name in nearly everything because he did In Bruges and he did Mm-mm-mm. billboards outside. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, that was brilliant. But he's a, he's a writer who probably took the mantle of, I mean, at the risk of hissing in his pocket as they say in Australia which apparently is a good thing um, and he's taken this mantle of you know m- modern Irish writer who's going to be seen in the future as you know genius he is I think, a genius level. and he has a very distinctive tone oh, and mm. and you know sort of black streak through his work which does fly in the face a little bit of what we talked about earlier about the fact that we're you're feeling that comedy is under threat where society is moving. Did I say that? Well, I think you did because you said that it is... First of all, you said it would be harder to get some edgy stuff up today because they they will be looking over and we're all paranoid about Twitter blowing up in our face and saying the wrong thing and getting all over the coals. Is that going to keep happening to the point where eventually it comes full circle and the new young ones appear and they just blow the doors off with just profanity and, and... Get over yourselfness. Well, I we know. need to get over ourselves. Oh God, I so agree with you. I think so long as you have people like Martin McDonough, McDonough, D U N N, writing. Um, I think there's hope for us all. You know, the Phoebe Waller Bridges, the Sharon Horgans. Mm. Um, you know, there are some great writers out there. And so, what you have to do, I suppose, is just go over that good mark and become brilliant and then you will be put on tv because people recognize real brilliance and it's what you were saying that middle order is dull 
And, you know, they will always be oppressed and they will always fill the schedules. But so long as you have those brilliant people that spark mm. and, you know, stand out, stand above, then I think you're probably okay. Leave me with two a or joke. three. Uh, well, okay. <laughs> no, I, I don't know any I, jokes. No, I'll give you time to think of a joke because you're the one who said that. Uh, leave, <laughs> leave, me, leave me with a couple of things that you have found really funny in the last 10, 15 years that may have gone under the radar of a lot of people because I watched them as well. Or let's, uh, I'll ask a different question. No, no, so, no. Okay, go on. What, what are the, can you give me the sort of three shows, bits of humour? You go, I wish I'd done that. And not Mrs. Brown Boys. <laughs> no. Same um, question, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's the same question, but it's a very interesting one. It's only because I'm a bit tired. I can't think of them. I, you know, as soon as you stop, I'll go, yeah, they're those. And then it'll be over. Well, it's been really nice talking to you. Um, well, this is a this is timely, but it, and it's dull, but and it's a drama, but obviously, you know, you look at Bodyguard and you go, mm. "Why am I not directing that?" Yeah. Because it's so brilliantly plotted, yeah. and so you know, I love that guy. You know, Line of Duty, Jed Mercurio. I think mm. he has the ability. I mean, I know Bodyguard wasn't terribly funny, but you just know that he has the ability to, you know, turn something yeah. funny. I don't think he ever has. He bodied his bodies, didn't he? Okay, Jeff, uh, Stephen Moffat, who I talked about, I think is one of the most brilliant writers of all time. I think his Doctor Who's a genius. Yeah, I don't yeah. even like science fiction, but you, yeah. but you look at how he plots and how he amuses and how he turns things around. I think he's a genius. Phoebe Waller-Bridge, I think, is utterly outstanding. I think Fleabag was brilliant. And also, I think, at the moment, Vanity Fair, James Strong's direction okay. of Vanity Fair. Oh, God, that makes me laugh so much. And the girl that's playing Becky Sharp, and I've forgotten her name, is exquisite. Excellent. There are some shows that you can find at the end of the blur of the podcast. Juliet May, it has been a pleasure to talk yeah. to you. Thank you for taking time out. Oh, and my I, pleasure. I enjoyed the chat and keep making us laugh. No, oh, I'll try. Thanks. Thank you.